John chapter 17. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father. Oh, he's now going to start praying. So let's see. We've had the Last Supper with the foot washing in chapter 13. He then goes into this dialogue in chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. We hear about the advocate. At the end of chapter 14, it says, let us rise, let us be on our way. Yeah. And we think, ah, oh, it's over. No, because then we have to go into chapter 15 and hear, how, hear about how Jesus is the true vine and we are the branches. And he keeps on going into chapter 16. And we hear more about the advocate and what the advocate's role is going to be. And he says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And you think, well, good, he's going to quit. No, he doesn't quit. He keeps a going and a going through the end of chapter 16. And you think, well, that has, certainly has to be the end. No, it's not. Chapter 17. So you, some people think I'm only the one who's long-winded. No, no, no. <laughs> Jesus is long-winded too. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Ooh, wow. So here we've got this prayer. Now the disciples are obviously hearing it. And we have him say first, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. He's talking in the third person. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? In fact, this thing contains a significant amount. This prayer is significantly in the third person, not entirely, but it's significantly in the third person, especially at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Well, Jesus is the son. Hmm. Since you have given him, me, he means, since you have given him authority over all People, the Greek word here is sarx, flesh. You've given him authority over all flesh, over all people. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Hmm. So Jesus has the authority to give eternal life. We don't even know about eternal life at this time, do we? Well, really? we've, we've heard some about it, but here we're going to get it defined. We're often quick to think that eternal life is about the hereafter. It's about going to heaven. It's about getting to live forever in heaven with the angels and the guys sitting up on the clouds reading the books and playing the harps. No. Here's what his definition of eternal life is. And this, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That's eternal life. Now, if you know God, and if you know Jesus Christ, then yeah, you're going to have the hereafter. But that's the basis upon which you got it. 
That's the basis upon which eternal life is. In other words, eternal life is not something that is yet to come. Eternal life is now. You know God the Father. You know Jesus Christ. And knowing them means you have eternal life. Wow. So it's not something you're waiting for. Now this is no in, in a different than just you're aware of them, such as because supposedly if you if you uh, uh, read the story of Lazarus and the lawyer, that even the people in hell know God. Right, knowledge of. Knowledge of. Yeah. They didn't know his son Jesus Christ. No. Well, the knowledge of they probably have knowledge of. The the word is uh, gnosko, which means to know, gnosis which is knowledge, it's, it's, it's a basic understanding of knowing, but it's more than just knowledge of or awareness of. It's, it's, I think that possibly the evangelicals are correct in this one respect. It's, it's knowing on the intimate basis, yeah. the personal basis. It's not just being aware of or knowledge about, it's knowing personally. But the Greek doesn't necessarily denote that. No, okay. that is by context that that is determined. Yeah. The Greek word that is used here is the simple word to know. Yeah. Okay. But and this authority that God gives them is different than the authority we talked last week about the devil having authority. Mm -hmm. This is an authority. And it should be exousia. Let's look at that verse. Um, two. Uh, verse two. Exousian. Kathos edokas auto exousian pasas sarkas, the authority over all flesh, exousia, authority, power, dominion. Um, and the devil's rulership. authority is, is same word? Same word. Same word. Powerful stuff. It's the same word. It means you're in charge. So how do we rectify that? You don't. You understand that he has authority, authority over all people. Therefore, Satan's authority is exercised within the context of that. But we see that, for example, in the book of Job, where mm -hmm. Yahweh asked the, the, the Satan, the, the accuser, what you been up to? And he's walking to and fro upon the earth and seeing what's going on. You know, well, take my servant Job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but they always say that so that much. Satan is not the same Satan. They say that. Yeah, but, I, I never did understand that. But it's, it's well, to the sense that the Satan that we know of in the New Testament is foreign to the Satan and experience and knowledge about Satan that was present in Job's day, yes. Yeah. They didn't have that formed, developed understanding. The Hasatan in Job's day is a... Um, a member of the heavenly court. Now that idea is incorporated under the Hasatan that's here, although he's been tossed out. But uh, the, it's not a fully developed understanding. It's not this, to say it's not the same entity is probably wrong. It is the same entity. Yeah. The knowledge of who this entity is didn't exist in Job's day to the degree that it existed in John's day, in Jesus' well, uh, day. Plus, uh, the concept of eternal life wasn't there. Your good and bad was rewarded. And then you went to sleep with your ancestors. Yeah, and, and so there was... And it was over with. Yeah. And this, the, this is taking the concept of eternal life and extending it from today onwards. As we saw that in chapter 14. 
But here he's pinning down that the essence of eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, it's knowing them in this personal sense that we're going to see about in this chapter. Knowledge of them as it's about to be described in the context of this prayer is what's it, what, what we're going to talk about. Being in him and him and us and in, encompassed in the love and, and he and me and me and thee and all this business. Um, all this tautological affirmations. Exactly. Which we're going to hit here. So let's, let's move forward. Since uh, you have given him, now notice this says, you have given him, that's me, Jesus speaking, authority over all people. He has authority over all people, all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, not to all people. Now, we would want to say, well, that's to all people then. No, it's not. How does the NIV read there in verse 2? For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, now if you assume that all those you have given him is all people, period, then it is universal. You never assume that. No, well, that's not what the Bible says, but boy, that's what a lot of people want to do. Oh, I say. That's extreme universal. Yes, it is. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. How does the NIV read verse 4? On verse 4, where did it go? Where did it go? I have brought, brought, B-R-O-U-G-H-T, you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I have brought you glory? That's right. Is that what yours said? Yeah. I've got the NIV. Good. You get the next one. I have brought you. I have brought you glory. I have glorified you. Edoxasen. Edoxa is glory, and it means to shine. It means to reveal. It means to expose. It means to, to present. It means to make visible. It means to set forward. Uh, to be recognized there, thereby. It means all of these things. Uh, the word doxa means um, uh, glory or light or radiance or revelation. Think about the idea of a searchlight shining on something specifically. That's doxa. That searchlight is doxa. And that's exactly that what he's again. doing here. But I, I wish Pete were here because of the English. Mm-hmm. You got that third person, third person, third person, yes. third person, yes. boom, first boom. person. Boom, I. Uh-huh. Exactly. The pronouns here are fascinating. He goes from these third person pronouns to verse 4, personal pronoun, first person. I glorified you. I revealed you. I shined the light upon you. I presented you. I revealed is kind of the, I almost prefer that because to say you glorified or I get brought glory to you is, is a nice theological word. It sounds really important, but what does it mean to say that Jesus glorified the Father? Just to there said glory, Father. No, there's something specific that he did and it's revealed. That's the essence of the Greek word in its context here. I revealed you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. I didn't leave it half done. 
So now, and notice this. Notice, notice what it says in verse 5. So now, Father, glorify me, reveal me, or reveal within me, or give to me the revelation of, reveal me in your own presence. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory, doxa, that I had in your presence before the world existed. Ooh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All of these ideas of, of God, of Jesus, the Word being God, and having all of the attributes and characteristics of God and Godness. And here, and we talk about, and the church talks about what it means for Jesus to become incarnate in human flesh, and, and how to deal with this business of him being amongst us and still being God and yet and yet and, and not blowing us away with his godness and, and we we deal with that whole idea, veiled in flesh the Godhead see from the Christmas hymn and all that kind of stuff. And then we have here in John Jesus saying this Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had. In your presence. I mean, it's really bending time. Bef yes, before the world existed. How does the NIV read there? Go. Oh, um, which verse? Verse 5. Okay. Verse 5 is, uh, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I had with you before the world began. Where yeah. have we been informed of that before other than the light thing and the... Oh, that he was with in John chapter one. That's what I mean. Other in the beginning that, was the word. Other than that, in all the gospels, that he was with Jesus was with God before the that's world it. began. Before the world began. This, that's that's it. it. Okay, that's kind of what I thought. Well, we have Jesus saying, "Before Abraham was, I am." But that's John. Well, he's before, way before Abraham. I know. I saw Satan fall from heaven. And that, Jeez, of course, in the Jewish sense. cosmology, took place before yeah. "Let There Be Light." So, yeah. Okay, yeah, this is it. This so, is John. Um, this is John. This cosmological conception of Jesus as being pre-existent is not Johannine only. That does come from the Synoptics, from Matthew and Luke, that Jesus is a is somehow pre-existent, although it's not spelled out specifically. Jesus comes from the Father as an incarnate, as the Son of God, and yet there's a sense in which he does pre-exist. In John, it's full-blown without question. It's a little different in John. And we have that in Paul, too, by the way. Yeah, we have that in Paul in Philippians. Oh, okay. In Philippians. Yeah. Here, let's... Yeah, Let's pause that. for just a moment. <laughs> I'm having see, trouble with the Now remember, Christmas John stuff. comes from the 90s. Philippians comes from the 50s. And in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, verse 4. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, 
or grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and, every, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is, a, this is called the Christ hymn. Mm-hmm. Paul utilizes it, but it, it pre-exists or predated even Paul's usage of it. He's quoting it to the Philippian church to make his point about how you're not supposed to take uh, uh, supersedence over another, that you're not to consider yourself better than anybody else. But in the course of articulating the hymn in its Christology, it indicates a pre-existence idea. So even in the 50s AD, AD, you had this idea that God, he was in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. Hmm, interesting. So you see nascent in Philippians some of this Johannine thought about a pre-existence of Jesus. And Philippians predates the synoptics at 20 years. Yeah, but I'm really having a reach with that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry? I'm not getting that. It's nascent, all right. It's sitting there sleeping. What do you mean read born? It. Read verse 5. Read, read your verses 5 Your six. attitude should five be... 5 and 6. Okay. okay. Who being in very nature God... Who, being in very nature God, did uh-huh. not consider equality with God something to be grasped? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's being very nature God, who's being, who being in the. It's actually the, the very nature God is is extraordinarily poor. Um, it doesn't it's in morphe theu. In morphe is the Greek word, morphe. Morphologically speaking, in the morphe, the Greek word is the is the word from which you get morphological, and it means quite literally form, structure, appearance. Uh, in morphe theu hupaarchon, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard consider uh, equality with God as something to be clung to. He's in the well. I get the you know I'm getting. <laughs> Who was I get in, the, the transition. He was in more, the, he's God. Who he was, is with God. But I'm really having trouble with the, well, how does this predate him to everything else? Well, if he's in the form of God and then becomes, and, and, then, and then humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant, he becomes human. Yes. We, we knew that. Yeah, I mean, we got that all through the means that, that means that. That, that doesn't mean he was here before the world was formed. It means that he pre-existed his incarnation. Yes. Got it. All right, but doesn't get that is that idea preexisted even John. Yes. Now preexistent to creation is another matter. Yes, but thank you. being in the form of God means that well, if he's in the form of God, then he has God's characteristics, and one of God's characteristics is uh, eternal existence. Or unchanging. Unchanging, even, which is interesting. It's not like God started out and then added something else to be then huh. formed into Christ. I mean, I can see where they can draw what you're saying from that. Yeah, sure. It's, 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 a, it's hard to... Mm-hmm. Well, it's extremely difficult. Uh, to, I'm with, it with kind Rich of puts, in the... In well, the, the it puts you know, the Christmas story of Luke somewhere else is what it does. Uh, 
Yeah, your first reading, you don't necessarily think about that. Or the first ten, actually. Yeah. He was <laughs> verse verse chapter chapter one of John's Gospel, verse two. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into the being, being in him was life, and the light life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Skip down, verse fourteen. And the Word became flesh. And lived among us. So here we have a, a, a Jesus is pre-existing. He is God. He, he shares a, a, an essence with God. Just as in chapter 1 of John. It's, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Though being in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God. As something to be exploited or grasped onto. But emptied himself into the form of a slave. So the idea being, in Philippians, we have a pre-existing Jesus who shares equality attributes with God, but then he empties himself into a human being, hides himself within it like the human being is the vessel that this cup contains coffee. He has poured himself into the cup as if the as the coffee has been poured into the cup, that's the essence of the meaning in Philippians. Well, in John's Gospel, not only is it spelled out without question that this event is the one who does this is the Word of God who pre-exists all the way back to creation itself and before. That's got to have so. A so John one is nascent within Philippians two. The, the ideas within John chapter 1 are rooted in ideas found in Philippians chapter 2 and further flesh out those ideas. All right? So you can see a continuity of thought between the Philippian church and the Johannine church. And that you can see that, that continuity of thought between Paul and John. It's there. It's more developed in John. Well, Paul was writing to the Philippians in the 50s, quoting a hymn they already knew. John is writing in the 90s. So there's more time to think about it and pray about it and write about it and preach about it and experience it. So yes, of course their understanding of the pre-existent character nature of Jesus is going to be more advanced than a hymn that dates to 52 AD or before. But you can still see a connection between the two. And then we have that continued right here in, um, in, in John chapter 17. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. And that little line there, that little bit there, mm -hmm. picks up from John chapter 1. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or, and to, and to draw even back, all the way back to 52 AD in the Philippians, almost a half century before, this idea of having the morphe of God again. That morphe would be that glory, that doxa. You understand the connection there? Yeah, but there's got to be a theological term for that. <laughs> what? That's it's called incarnation. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> We've had incarnation all through the synoptics of the New Testament. Yes, what I'm uh -huh. saying is taking Jesus uh -huh. and 
and following it all the way back to before creation, mm -hmm. before anything else was there, before man was, before Adam and Eve. Right. Before let there be light. Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. That is a little bit different than the, any sermon I've ever heard. I'm understanding that maybe the so it's, it's got to be a theological term or something. It's the 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 um, there is it's in, within the, it's called a, it's it's called a high Christology yeah, where okay. where Jesus is not just pre-existent to the incarnation, but Jesus is is consubstantial with the Father in eternity. We talk about Jesus's character as the second. This is Trinitarian theology. It it's, it's goes back to um, Athanasius. He said that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. And the Holy Spirit is co-eternal with the Father and the Son. That with them there is no time other than when they breach the barrier into time where we exist. Then they appear to have temporality. And that's also where the distinction can be drawn between their persons, is how they interact with us in time. But otherwise, they are God. And they are not divided, and they are not mingled. They are separate, and yet one. One times one times before one. Before time. And before, not before, outside of time. Apart from time. Separate from time. As we know, yeah, we just kind yeah. of understand. time is within their realm of existence, but they expand beyond it. That concept of punctiliar time again, mm -hmm. where all of time is one instant, and our conception of time as a linear progression from past to the present to the future is our experience of it within the progression of it. But it is not God's necessary experience of it, other than as God interacts within it. Therefore, Jesus, as being co-eternal with the Father, as is revealed in, in both John chapter 1 and now John chapter 17, that whole idea is, is what you're talking about, is what you're asking about, is, is, is being affirmed. He is God, therefore he is co-eternal by, by its very nature. That idea is not spelled out completely in Philippians, but the idea of him having the form or morphe of God and a quality with God that he does not want to grasp onto does lead one to this. The logical progression from 52 AD in Philippians to 92 AD in John is very clear. That's 40 years there and yet the development is, 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 is deep, but it's not so deep to be shocking. You can see how that can happen very easily in that period of time. Heck, you could do it even shorter over a period of time. Uh, so, especially when you're considering the high level of affirmations. Think about the front loading of all these affirmations made by all these disciples already. All that stuff is already present within the community. So to make this kind of an affirmation here is not a surprise. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Give me back that morphe. Okay, I dare ask this question. What work did he finish? 
that he's talking about right now in this paragraph. I realize we're out of sequence in John 1. What work did he finish? I didn't think it was finished yet. At that time. In, John, in chapter 17, he talks quite a bit about the entire Christ event as if it's completed. Actually, he did that in 16 as well, and he did it in 15. In 16, he talks about having to leave them mm -hmm. and his work being done. In 17, he's going to do the same thing. So in some ways, while this predates the trial and the death and resurrection, in reality, it assumes it. And yeah, that's exactly. the work. Exactly. But, but that's exactly what happens over oh, here chapter, in chapter 16, verse 8 and following, where he talks about um, he will prove the world wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no more. That's resurrection and ascension right there. And judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned, past tense. That won't be the case until after the death and resurrection right. of Jesus. Right. So it is, it is, um, it's, it's an eschatology that is assumed to already be. For, for Jesus, and for, especially for John, and, and, and Jesus, therefore, within the context of John, the question of time is irrelevant. Yes, it is. Hmm. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know the truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So right here we have sort of an echoing affirmation of what his disciples said over in chapter 16, verse 29, where they said, yes, now you are speaking plainly, not in any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need to have anyone question you. By this we believe that you come from God. And of course, all of those front-loaded affirmations in chapters one, two, and three as well all stem from that affirmation right there in chapter 16, which Jesus is now frankly making reference to in chapter 17 in this prayer. Remember, this is a prayer to the Father. All right. it's, a, it's not the kind of prayer we would pray, but it's, it's, it's a prayer almost more for the disciples to hear and therefore for us to hear. Well, if I'm the Father praying to myself, Oh, no, no, no. You're not the Father praying to yourself. You're the Son praying to the Father, but you are both God. Exactly. <laughs> well, Precisely. You're the, Bingo. you're the incarnate. Thank you. You're the, yeah, Thank you're you the for clearing that up. You're the incarnate Son. Yeah. But I'm also the Father. Because um, I'm part of the Father. I'm morphed, I'm morphed from the Father. Because that's what this whole three paragraphs has been. Oh, boy. <laughs> I only can take you at what words we are discussing. Ah. Uh, Oh, I wish Pete were here, don't you? You can have fun with Trinity here. Yeah, I wish I Pete were here. <laughs> <laughs> Trinitarian theology can cause you to look, be cross-eyed, trust me. It hurts your brain. You can never, in the end, fully come to comprehend it. The closest I've ever come is, it, it is to talk about it in terms of multiplication of one. One times one mm -hmm. times one. Not one plus one plus one. One times one times one is one. 
Each one is an aspect of the other multiplied by itself. When you start talking about the Trinity in that way, you, you can kind of see how the idea works, but it's even that is a failed attempt to capture the concept. Anytime you try to comprehend it, you end up failing. Well, I would add synergy to that, and then I'm closer. Mm, yeah, exactly. One times one. Oh, but in the more end, than the sum of the parts. But in the end, you end up failing to no, capture sure. the concept. Yes, you do. But you can come at it from multiple directions. And when you do that, you build a better picture, just like the blind guy touching the elephant at the trunk, at the midsection, no, and the legs kind of bit. And you get the multiple different images of who the elephant is or what the elephant is. Well, any one grasping of the elephant's a failure. But all, but if you grasp it and you feel it all over, you can tell you what you can tell what it is. It's an elephant, not a great big snake, or a couple of pillars, or a floating <laughs> belly. It's <laughs> exactly. See, I feel a lot better about Luke now than in the Christmas story that you explain the elephant. Yeah, in some in some ways, yeah, in many ways. Luke is easy compared to this. No kidding. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. So here we have, here we have this prayer. They have been given to Jesus. They were God the fathers. They have now been given to God the Son. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them. And they have received them and know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. <laughs> okay. What kind of prayer is this? <laughs> it's called a theological prayer that you learn in seminary, not one that you pray <laughs> Thank you. When, Thank God. when you're a Thank Jewish you rabbi Lord. in the first century. But that's the point. <laughs> Let's keep going. I am, now, 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 from here on down, you get an interesting series of statements. I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world. Well, that's fascinating. He's praying here for the disciples, for, for those who follow him, not for the world. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me. You know, there's your distinction. Not the whole world has been given to Jesus, uh, although he has authority over the whole world. He, he has not had the world given to him, only those who believe in him have been given to him. All right. Uh -huh. All right. You got a good circle there? But the okay. father may believe All right. in him. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're going to get dizzy here in just a minute <laughs> uh, if you're not already. Because they are yours. Verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world. Now, wait a minute now, Jesus, you're sitting right there praying. You haven't yet gone to the yeah. Garden of Gethsemane. You haven't yet been arrested. You haven't been, yet been tried. You haven't been convicted. You haven't been crucified. You haven't died. You haven't been raised. And yet he says in verse 11, and now I am no longer in the world. This is that non-temporal concept here. Yeah. Now I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Well, that's very true. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given to me so that they may be one as we are one. Now, what is this name, your name, that you have given to me? What's that? What's God's name? 
Yes. I am. Yes. Yeah, right, correct. It's Yahweh in Hebrew, I am in English. And it means the one who is and who cannot not be. The best visual explanation I've ever had of the meaning of the name Yahweh is to take a water hose, turn on the water valve, let the water start running, reach about midway in the hose, and pinch it closed. And the feeling of pressure that builds up behind your hand in the water hose, that's Yahweh, the desire to come out, to gush out, and be known. That's the essence of Yahweh, Yahweh-ness, to be known, the one who will be known, the one who is known, the one who is and who cannot be anything other than who and what he is. That's Yahweh. Now, what is the name of Jesus? What's it in Hebrew to begin with? What's Jesus' name in Hebrew? What's it in Hebrew it's English? It's um, the Jericho thing. Yes. And what was his name? The battle of Joshua. Joshua is the English version of his Hebrew name. His Hebrew name is Yeshua. And Yeshua is the contraction of the Hebrew name Yahweh and the Hebrew word saves or delivers. So Yeshua means Yahweh delivers or the one who is delivers, saves. Okay. That's the name. Yes, that's the name. So, putting that, even that idea in mind, notice what he asks for them, what he, what he prays for them. Uh, and now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name, the I am, that you have given to me, the I am who saves. Protect them with salvation, in other words. Protect them, the one who is, protects them with salvation, with, with deliverance, with... Keep in mind that in Greek, well, that's Hebrew. In Greek, the word to save, sozo, is the same word as to heal, sozo. To heal and to save are the same word. To save is to be made whole. To save is to be made complete. To save is to be made one. Hence, the idea that they may be one as we are one could probably be better translated as follows. Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be whole, complete, as we are whole or complete. Now that puts a slightly different spin on it, doesn't it? So that we may be complete, whole, as Jesus and the Father are complete or whole. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you had given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost. Oh, poor old Judas. So that the scripture might be fulfilled. He fulfilled his role. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete among themselves. Does your say in or among? 
within them within themselves so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them the full measure of my joy within them um, I'm not sure I like that rendering uh, let me read it in Greek read yours again please what's the verse number again I have my elbow on it oh I'm sorry um, that's verse uh, 13. Yeah. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. The word is pe pleromenane. The completeness. The completeness. The completeness. Full measure is correct, I suppose, but completeness. Read it one more time, please, verse 13. While I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Within them. Within them. In themselves or among themselves is how I read it. It's not just within them. It's the completeness of the of my joy within and among them. Might be a rendition. In themselves is what the NRSV reads. That's uh, about as literal as any other version that I have been able to see or as I can see it here. Um, mm. But among themselves, it's in and among is the idea in the preposition there. Is that, and that's not referencing the Holy Spirit? Right? Yeah, it is actually. But now I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy. He's saying these things in the world so they have, may have my joy complete in themselves. Uh, that joy is, and he told us in the preceding chapter about the advocate who does that. Yeah, that's, and this paraphrase thing doesn't even read like the same thing because it. No, the paraphrase. That reads, paraphrase is very divergent. Ooh boy, that's yeah. the old living. The, the new living is actually a heck of a lot better. It's paraphrased, but it's it's actually a lot better. That's the old yeah, living. living, and it's it, whew, wow. Yeah. Um, I have the given them thing. your word. And the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, and, and keep that in mind. We're, we're, we're part of the world. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. And Jesus isn't asking the Father to remove us from the world. Uh, we're going to live in the world, but we're not going to be of it. There's a difference. It's one of the one of the problems with monasticism is so frequently the monks are taken out of the world entirely and they don't live they don't live in conjunction with it or with it or within it because they don't want to be of it they take themselves out of it and that's actually a mistake it's one of the reasons why well the community that i was a part of didn't do that they 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 were not completely cloistered away. They had outreach? Was that they had outreach. They, they pastored churches. They taught in seminaries and colleges. And they worked as chaplains in hospitals and, and that, that kind sense. of stuff. So, I mean, they did stuff in the world. 
but they lived in a community and they would periodically pull themselves away from the world in retreat form and I loved that and there's always a place for that but that was the thing I liked about that particular community many monastic communities don't do that they just remove themselves from the world completely and I have that a problem that doesn't sound like they're following Jesus no it doesn't no it doesn't if they remove themselves from the world well, I can imagine it's com- almost impossible to be in the world not be influenced by it and not be of the world too yeah and so like you say the taking yourself away is the attempt to try to not be of it to, to at least yeah, give yes. you some point of reference uh-huh and and in the community that i was in we were able to do that it, it really helped to be living in the community but at the same time we had enough connection and conjunction with the world that that we could relate to it it was not beyond our ability to relate. But, but you know, it, to me, oh, and, and, and uh, I speak from ignorance mostly, uh, uh, it seems that as Christians we shouldn't be not of the world because our, our, what perfect, if we remove ourselves from the world, what, what is our function? No, yeah, we lose our function. Yeah. We have to be the light of the world. Yeah. To be the light of the world, you have to be shining within it. You, have to be. you can't put that under the light. You don't put the yeah, lamp. That would be putting it under the bushel basket. That's exactly right. And you don't want to do that. So here we see where there is some coherence cool. between John and that and that teaching from from Matthew and from Luke. I have I I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Or just from evil, but actually, I think the rendering here, me, the evil one, yeah. is appropriate. What does your say? Finally, it says the evil, evil one. one. Evil we one. Agree. <laughs> they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. All right. Now that seems to say. I've often heard that quoted with regards to the Bible. The wording there is interesting, though, because especially given John and its context and what John has said, it, it, it literally says, Halagos hasas eltheia estin. The logos is truth, which is goes right back to chapter one. Ain arche ain halagos. In the beginning was the word. The word. So the word and is who the is the word? God is word. Jesus, and Jesus, is word. Jesus, and Jesus is the incarnate word. Hence, if you want to pull that together, sanctify them in the truth. Your logos is truth, not so much your Bible, your scriptures, but Jesus, the Word, me himself. Yeah, that's a pretty bad mess if they are saying. Not necessarily. You got to remember the context they're in. When, when John was being written in 90 AD, there was only one collection of anything that is now in the New Testament, and that's the letters of Paul. Now the thing that's and it wasn't viewed as scripture. Is when we interpret some sects would interpret that. Oh, as, they take that and say, Oh, that's oh, the Bible. The Bible. The B I B L E. That's the book they for me. They missed the whole point of the, they of the first they chapter. They missed the, they missed the whole point. John's intention is to draw straight Jesus. back connection to chapter one in Jesus. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's even more clear when you read about when Jesus says earlier, just a couple of chapters earlier, I am the way and the truth and the life. Sanctify them in the truth, Elfin, 
Your word is truth. I mean, come on. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I'm starting to get dizzy again. Yeah, now we're spinning. (laughs) And there... The monks should take from that, even though they are not not of the world, they are sent into the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. You would think. Yes, that's exactly correct. And and there are monks who do that. And the community that I was a part of did that, or tried to do that. That was one of the things that we always reminded ourselves that we were called to do. Now look at, here's another way, reading verse 18. You have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I, verse 19, does your say sanctify? For them, I sanctify myself. Sanctify? Mm -hmm. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be fully, truly sanctified. Ego agiazo. Agiazo. Agiasmos. Agios. Holify. To make myself holy. To set myself apart. Keep going, because I'm something having trouble is, with some something of these that is, holy. Something. something that is holy is something that is set apart or placed on the altar. Okay, that's not placed on the altar to God. It is now set apart, agiasmos. It is set apart for God. Anything that is, you know, not in this case, but anything <laughs> that is set upon the altar is set apart for God. And, I mean, we have, okay. and that is the imagery here. And that is the word that is being used. So you can kind of understand this in this sense then. And for their sakes, I set myself apart. I have set myself apart. that makes a lot more sense. So that they also may be set apart in truth. And you think about that first part, not as something that he's doing right then, but as something that he has always done. Yeah. And for their sakes, I have set myself apart. Not I sanctify myself or I set myself apart now, but I have all, not in the Greek, the grammar doesn't help here. I'm interpreting it. I have set myself apart so that they also may be set apart in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, oh good, he's not just going to ask for the guys who are sitting right there, thank God, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Okay, there's that phrase again. Whole, complete. As you, Father, are in me, are you, are you, are you holding onto the table? As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me and we may all be dizzy. <laughs> the fifth time he's done this, you know, he does this one. You and me and I and you and they and us and, and we, we and them. We and them. <laughs> all together. All in one accord. And they don't mean a, they don't mean a Honda. <laughs> Uh, in a, yeah, it does get quite, quite synergistic, quite tautological, but that's okay. That's what this is about. It's all in, it's all interconnected, all woven together, all spun up in one. 
I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There you go. There you go. The, now, the world ain't going to believe it, by the way. <laughs> but the body of Christ, the, the believers, the, his disciples, their, their purpose is to be a witness to the world, a light to the world, a light to the nations. The Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. Okay, he just said that again. Yeah. <laughs> But you notice, all of it's a continual thing of intermediary mediation. From the Father to the Son to the Spirit to us. To the Father to the Son to the Spirit to us. To us to the Spirit to the Son to the Father. You know. And and now from the Father to us, us to the Father, too, even. How does that song go? We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are now one. we know where it came from. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. It. I and them. <laughs> Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay. Now, are you dizzy? <laughs> that other one I'm going to go back and read the whole paragraph. You know, he needs to go counterclockwise one time. He's continuing going clockwise. Exactly. Let's, let's, I want to read the whole paragraph. Just listen. Don't read it in the NIV. Just listen. I ask not on, their, on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, you may have heard it. I don't know. It's not present in the Greek, but it appears as though this phrasing from 20 through 23 is reflective of an Aramaic hymn. There's a poetic structure here. There's a hymnic structure here. And it may be, although it's been lost to time in translation, that what John is incorporating here in translation into Greek is a, actually an Aramaic hymn of the church. Hence, you have this repetition. Remember, one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry, of Hebrew hymnody, is repetition. A continual repetition. Where you say it, and then the next stanza, you say it again, but you say it differently. Like the Psalms, right? It's like the Psalms. The Psalms are an example of this. Here we have this repeated refrain of 
being one, you and me, me and you, and us in them, or they and us, and it's back and forth, and back and forth. And it's, it seems as though there is an echo here through lost in translation, though lost in time, there seems to be some indication that what we have is a very ancient hymn of the church that's echoing around here in John. And it's forming this strange structure that's kind of very weird. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's another indicator talking about before the foundation of the world, there's this love of God for, for, for the Son. So he desires also not only that they be protected in the world, he desires not also that they be one, he desires also not only that, that they might be complete and proclaim and witness to the world of, of, of what God has done in Jesus Christ, but also that they would then be with him where he is. May be with me where I am to see my glory, to experience, participate in my glory, my radiance, which you've given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and those know and, the, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And here we have yet more of that particular, apparently more of that hymn. In fact, yeah. it is believed by some that we have that hymn dispersed throughout chapter 17. But the largest chunk of it that's, con that's in one place is from 20 through 23. When he talks about you and me and I and you and us and them and them and us and all of that back and forth and being one as we are one, let them be one, let us be one in them and them and one in us, let them we be one in each other, all of that stuff seems to be reflective of the repetition of Hebraic poetry or hymnity that that would have been part of the New Testament church even before the Greek period, possibly. Uh, that's what's interesting that you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. The idea, the therefore, that is out. that we're hearing an echo here placed in Jesus' lips of a hymn of the church in which they sang something like this that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Father and the Son are in us. And since we are one with the Father and the Son, we are called to be one with each other. Oh, you us, had that last part, didn't you? Us in them and them in us, bound together with love. It seems like something like that is a hymn. And we have echoes of that hymn throughout. It, not, this is one of the places, but it exists elsewhere. We have one of those hymns in Paul's, two of those hymns in Paul's letters. One of them in the letter of Philippians we already looked at tonight. Uh, we have another one where he says, uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And that we actually know what that one sounded like. 
in Greek, it it um, uh, it actually had a change because some of the early manuscripts of Paul's letters, where he says, "Rejoice in the Lord always," and again I say, "Rejoice." Let your gentleness be made known. The Lord is near. Um, Philippians. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Um, the second part of that is Pauline. But the first part, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's one of the oldest hymns of the church. In some of the oldest manuscript copies we have of the Philippian letter, which dates back to the second century, there's actually musical notation above the letters for how it's to be sung. Wow. And with the, for a long time we didn't know how to read that notation. And then some manuscripts were discovered at, at Herculaneum, which contain musical notation and how to sing it in, in the musical notation of the Latin hymnody. And, and, and it kind of was in parallel. And that taught us how then to sing the Greek notation. And when you come up with that, and you apply it to, to the notation that we had for the Philippians reading, it, 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 you sing it like this. Pan tate chai reta, pan tate chai reta, pan tate chai reta, pan tate chai reta, adia leptos prasucheste. Adia leptos prasucheste in Ponte Eucharistete, in Ponte Eucharistete. And it's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Um, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. That's it. That does sound like something we heard. It is Temple a Emmanuel. It is a very, it is a very ancient. It is a very ancient hymn of the church. It actually is a Greek hymn, though. It it, it, it seems to have been drafted in Greek, and it, it, it contains a cadence that is very well known in 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 Greek uh, musicology that we now have recovered. But it's only been the last thirty years that that's been recovered. That's pretty cool. It still sounds like some of the well, there there would be the, there would be it may have eventually temple. come from that. But anyway, that's. That's one of the earliest hymns. Well, we have echoes of that here in chapter 17. And when you think about and try to recover it, and there have been dissertations done that have tried to recover the, the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father and, the, and them and us and us and them and us then together and bound up in love, is it, it, they've tried to, they can't recover it. It's completely lost. Unless some piece of literature something. shows up somewhere that would allow us to recover. But the difference is, is that this one is Aramaic. It's not Greek. Because it's too lost in translation to have been in Greek originally. But you can hear the refrains repeated again and again oh, yeah. and again and again. And it's the reason why you're getting dizzy <laughs> with the circularness the of the articulation here. The reason why you're getting dizzy is because it repeated itself and it repeated. It was one of the refrains in the hymn that kept coming back to it and back to it and back to it. And then there was other material in it and possibly some of the other stuff that we don't normally identify as such as being part of that circular bit is possibly making up other portions of chapter 17.
You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.